Hello, this is Spotlight on France. I'm Alison Hurd. And I'm Sarah Elsis. Coming up, we head to the Cannes Film Festival, which is in full swing in the south of France. We talk about movies and controversies. How much is this festival a platform for film or to raise issues like sexual harassment? And the yellow vest go political. We meet a gilet jaune DJ running for a seat in the European Parliament. He's enthusiastic, but the question is, is the movement behind him? But first, France is not prepared for the effects of climate change in the next 50 to 100 years. This is according to a report commissioned by two senators published on Thursday. Between now and 2050, France will face what they call an inevitable climate shock. Things like heat waves and rising sea levels. And Sarah, we've already seen forest fires, right, in the south of France just last year. Indeed, yeah. By 2100, the report says France will be crushed by heat, particularly in the southeast. Temperatures will increase up to five degrees on average in the summer. By 2060, even Mediterranean areas will face fire risks of 80 to 100 days a year. So things will be really different. And the report gives some suggestions on how to address all of this that will inevitably affect our society, like a national plan to adapt agriculture, putting in place flood zone construction regulations, reinforcing buildings to withstand large changes in temperature. France has a national plan for climate adaptation, but it's not really funded properly. No, it's not. And the senators who commission the report say that the policy approaches in France are much more about reducing the impact, reducing emissions, rather than accepting that climate change is here and it will have an effect. This is not unique to France. Worldwide, only 20% of international financing on climate is dedicated to adaptation. The vast majority is still going into curbing emissions themselves. Right, and what these guys are saying is that France should focus on mitigation. Perhaps it's more pessimistic, Mm. saying, well, this is inevitable, but it's more realistic, too. So they want Parliament to take on the subject and introduce a law. And um, they'd like to see the effects of climate change be part of school curriculums and professional trainings. A key role in all this are regional governments and cities. Interestingly, Paris got a nod just this week by the CDP. That's a non-profit group that pushes institutions to give details about their greenhouse gas emissions. And it put the capital among the cities in the world moving quickest to towards carbon neutrality. Paris aims to be carbon neutral by 2050. Today, it gets 35% of its energy from clean sources compared to a city like San Francisco, which gets 60%. So yeah, Paris uh, aiming for carbon neutrality, small parts here and there, cities and that kind of thing. But really, if you go back to this Senate report, it's good to try to reduce emissions, but climate change is here and it will affect us and we need to accept that. Tuesday, France paid final respects to two commandos who were killed during a raid to rescue four hostages, two of them French, in Burkina Faso last week. The soldiers were honoured in a ceremony at the Invalide military complex in Paris, led by President Emmanuel Macron. Le maître Cédric de Pierrepont et le maître Alain Bertoncello tombèrent. 
Cédric de Pierrepont and Alain Bertoncello fell, says Macron. The mission was a success, but our two soldiers died as heroes for France. Now, Macron has a thing for heroes. In a 2017 interview during the presidential campaign, he was talking about young people being attracted to jihad. He said that France no longer has heroes, and it needs collective stories of dreams and heroism. Yeah, and before that, in his book, Revolution, that was in 2016, he'd already talked about how you can't build France, you can't adhere to it if you don't adhere to its history, its culture, its roots, and its figureheads. Now, he was speaking as a man of letters himself. We often hear how he grew up reading with a lot of literature, a lot of history. And so Macron has says this has made him feel very connected to France. And since he came to office, he's continued to talk about heroes and heroism whenever he had the occasion. So Macron is keen to create new heroes too, like Mamadou Gassama, the Malian Spider-Man, who last year scaled a building in Paris to rescue a four-year-old child who was dangling from a fourth-floor balcony. Gassama was given French citizenship in recognition of his bravery and he got a job as a firefighter. Now, to get back to this hostage situation, during the ceremony, Macron evoked Sophie Petronin. She's an NGO worker who was kidnapped in Mali nearly two and a half years ago in December 2016. He said that France never abandons its children, whatever the circumstances, except that her circumstances are complicated. She's being held by Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, ACMI, very difficult to penetrate. The rescue in Burkina Faso last week was done quickly to avoid, actually, those hostages being transferred to the more organized ACME network. Petrona's son said he appreciated the recognition, but he wants action. He said this week that he wants to go to Mali to give psychological support to his mother. He needs help from France to do this, and it's not sure it's forthcoming. <laughs> And now to go back in time. Now, we like to avoid the obvious here on Spotlight on France, but you can't escape the fact that France is identified worldwide with the Eiffel Tower. Our own logo even features it. On Wednesday this week, Paris celebrated the 130th anniversary of the Iron Lady's opening to the public. By welcoming 1,300 children. There were postcard workshops, there was a concert, a sound and light show with strobe lights flashing that shone from some 500 eco-friendly projectors. You've got to be ecological. Now, the Eiffel Tower first opened its doors to the public on the 15th of May, 1889, as part of the World Fair. That followed two years, two months and eight days of construction work to put together more than 18,000 pieces of iron. So a huge feat of engineering, thanks to its mastermind, the industrialist Gustav Eiffel. Now, it was meant to be temporary, and it was slated to be dismantled in 1909. And some were greatly anticipated this dismantling. Yeah, they really wanted to see the back of it. There were complaints and petitions from the likes even of famous writers like Emile Zola and Guy de Maupassant. Apparently the latter complained the Eiffel Tower was more famous than him. But a year after it opened in 1900, Eiffel had the bright idea to suggest it be used as a radio antenna. So it got strategic and military value, and that's what saved its life. And since then, it's become such a symbol of France that it manages to be at the centre Every time something important happens, it was lit with the colors of the European Union flag during the six months that France held the bloc's rotating presidency in 2008. It was lit up green with the words Paris Agreement is done after the world leaders signed a climate deal at the COP21 World Climate Conference in December 2015. Anyone wanting to prove they've been to Paris takes a selfie with the tower in the background. It attracts up to 7 million visitors per year, but you really have to love a good queue.
film festival in Cannes on the French Riviera is an annual gala of glitz and glamour. The world's biggest film festival draws Hollywood stars and film newcomers alike for 10 days of movie screenings, parties, and business wheeling and dealing. And of course, there are controversies. This year, the festival gave a prize, an honorary Palme d'Or, to French film star Alain Delon, who's admitted to hitting women and who has close ties with the French far right. Rosalyn Hyams is in Cannes, soaking in the sun and the films and the polemics. She's a big film buff herself, so no wonder she'd rather think about the movies. But as she told me, the issues are there in the films themselves. It is over and above all a film festival, but it's also, you know, it's a festival that talks about social issues, that talks about social injustice. I mean, we've got Ken Loach's film, Sorry We Missed You. Um, that's a film, it's, you know, it's a burning social issues about poverty. So if you go and see a Ken Loach film, um, or if you advertise a Ken Loach film, people are going to be talking about these issues. There are obviously NGOs, there are groups that represent different you know, interest groups. Is Cannes really a place for them? Well, you know, it's, it's a debatable point. I think the Cannes Film Festival does quite a good job in giving them some space and also containing that so it doesn't take over the real nub of the issue, which is films. But the film industry itself, going back to this uh, polemic around Alain Delon and the Me Too movement in the film industry hitting France, is this the time to do reckoning for, say, the French film industry? Well, look, after last year when the Me Too campaign was absolutely booming and the festival gave it a lot of high-profile space, a lot of high-profile space to women in film, remember about 70 filmmakers and actresses climbed the red-carpeted stairs in the first weekend, gave speeches and it created quite an impact and it was just one example there were the black actresses and filmmakers also made their mark last year in a demonstration so the festival um, does give this space it's also among the film industry organizations that signed a charter known as 5050 by 2020 meaning a gender parity goal across the film industry by next year it's a tall order though to change centuries old mentalities in two years everyone's going to recognize that but the idea was to get it going and start making progress the festival director Thierry Frémaux has voiced a bit of frustration having to to address all these issues when really on some level he says this is just about film. Well I think that most people here uh, will agree that the festival is first and foremost about films and that's why he justifies giving Alain Delon uh, this honour to mark his contribution to cinema. Um, he's in his 80s now. He was Tancredi in Visconti's Il Gattopado with Claudia Cardinale in Burt Lancaster in 1963. He's extremely handsome. He's also played the role of Julius Caesar in Asterix at the Olympic Games. That was much more recent. He's made more than 60 films. He's also a director and a producer. But the polemic arose over um, him making comments in public in interviews uh, and admitting that he'd slapped women. And he's also friendly with extreme right nationalist Jean-Marie Le Pen. And the festival of Thierry Frémaux tried to say, well, people have freedom of expression here. And that means that you can express one thing and somebody else can express just the opposite. That's, of course, the age-old debate over art, whether the person making the art should be judged and the, the artwork itself, you know, whether they're separate or not. Um, in terms of the films that you're seeing, of course, they do bring up a lot of these social issues. These films are as much about art as about society and the way of the world. I mean, look at the um, opening film this year, The Dead Don't Die. Well, you can just say in a throwaway manner, this is a zombie film. Um, this is Jim Jarmusch's 
humour. But it's not just that. It's um, a really, really significant way, as well as an entertaining way, of talking about what we need perhaps to pay attention about in our societies, how we need to think about um, how we live. The zombie film is not for the zombies, but for the idea that we are possibly becoming zombies. What do zombies stand for? Unthinking, undead and constantly consuming. Then also Franco-Malian director Ladge Lee's film about tensions between police and local residents in a tough housing estate in the north of Paris. It's a debut feature, it's violent in parts. It's called Les Miserables, which is also the title of the book by 19th century French writer Victor Hugo, which really leads us to reflect on riots that make headlines. And he tracks the events, the words, the relations that lead from a smouldering situation to full-blown conflict in the staircase of a social housing block, and the suspense mounts to a standoff. Now, this is a thriller. You're not watching it as a documentary. The philosophy of the film, a film which avoids taking sides at any time, is a quote from Hugo, there are no bad we. There are no bad men, there are only bad gardeners, and that's really food for thought. So deep, social, personal, local or world issues, it's all being talked about in the films, and this really is what the festival is about. Now, one of these films that touches on issues is Des Hommes. In English, it's called Men Inside. It's about the Beaumet prison in Marseille in the south of France. It's infamous here in France. It was built in the 1930s. It held the last execution there in 1977 before the death penalty was abolished in 1981. Today, it's overcrowded with 2,000 inmates in 30,000 square meters. Rosalind met the directors, Alice Audio and Jean-Robert Violet, who were both from Marseille. For them, the prison had a certain draw. Les Baumettes, it's uh, one of the two mythic places in Marseille. So you can't travel in Marseille without hearing about Les Baumettes. You started making your film in 2013, or you started writing the film in 2013. It took you a little while to actually be able to get into the prison, to get that authorization. Yes, it was quite long, because this this jail is particularly dirty, it's dark, and when you enter inside, you really have the feeling to get stuck in the dark side of our society. And I think the Ministry of Justice was a bit shy about that. At first, we asked to the communication of the prison authorities, and they, they told us, ask us anything but not the bomet. And then we carry on asking. At first, we were authorized to go into the jail that is underneath the tribunal of Marseille. And then we stay there and we stay there. And little by little, step by step, we try to get to be the, the fly on the wall to get accepted by the men that are inside. Do you feel that your work actually has made the prison authorities take a closer look at what was going on in the prison and in some way were you doing research for them that they needed to do? I think this is part of the reason why the director of the Beaumet accepted us. I think she wanted to show to the judge and to the prosecutor where the man that they judge goes to. And I think she wanted to show as well how difficult it was to cope with crazy people. A good part of the men that are inside the Beaumets should be in psychiatric hospital. 
and she has to deal with that. She wanted to, to show the reality. When you were making this film, what did it bring you personally? I felt hopeless. It was the first time for me to, to stay uh, as long with uh, those young people. The first year we were accepted into the jail, we spent one month. Just without a camera, just without, Yeah, just looking. Then a year after, we get inside like for something like two or three weeks. And for me, that was the first time to be really like to spend an entire day with them and to talk with them. And we had some powerful and strong conversation about the future. And it's very hopeless. I had the feeling, in fact, to be very close to some men that are invisible. For my part, perhaps the more important thing for me I saw is uh, in this place, in like huge, uh, brutal architecture, in concrete, with all this history everywhere. There is humanity everywhere trying to, to be there. You, I mean, you, you mean in every like small places where it's possible hum humanity uh, exists. So this was the huge surprise for me in a place where all is done. To erase all that, humanity come back. That was Jean-Robert Violet and Alice Audio, the co-directors of the film Des Hommes, speaking to Rosalind Hyams. <laughs> Campaigning for the EU elections began on Monday at midnight with a record 34 lists in France. These elections will be a litmus test for the Gilets Jaunes or Yellow Vest movement, which began protesting against President Macron and his reform program six months ago. But the Yellow Vests are quite diverse. They go from the far left to the far right and everything in between. And getting them federated in an election is no small feat. Some supporters are rejecting the elections out of hand, refusing to be part of the system. Others are running as candidates, including on Evolution Citoyenne list, led by the controversial Christophe Chalonson. He's the one who created a political spat between France and Italy when he invited the leader of the populist five-star movement, Luigi Di Maio, to join in one of the Yellow Vest protests a few weeks ago. But the only list on which all 79 candidates say they are Gilets Jaunes is Alliance Jaune, led by the French singer Francis Lalanne. I went along to their HQ in central Paris to meet number 13 on the list, André Lanné. He's a DJ, and he's come up from his village of Saint-Jouard near Grenoble in the French Alps to help run the campaign. André Lanné unrolls a wad of campaign posters and takes one out. It's bright blue and yellow with Alliance Jaune, la révolte par le vote, revolt through voting, printed in big letters. There's no photo because their list has no leader. It's a citizen's campaign. We don't want to be leaders. We just want to give Yellow Vest our voice. We want to federate around all revendication, around all kind of Yellow Vest. Going to go and yep. stick up a poster? Uh, let's go. 34 metal billboards are positioned in front of a nearby school. Alliance Jaune is number 28. Got his glue. the first time you've um, put up a campaign poster? Yes, the first time. The first time there is a project uh, I believe really, really deeply. And maybe the last, but it will not be the least. We will not stop until 
we give to our country a real, real democracy and a real good way of ruling the country. Lanet's involvement in the Gilets Jaunes movement goes back to the 17th of November last year when people gathered at roundabouts up and down the country to protest over the introduction of a green tax on petrol and diesel. Many of them on low incomes in the provinces depend on their diesel vehicles and the new tax was the final straw. Uh, on the first uh, roundabout, I bring my musical stuff and I put music all day long. Everybody uh, was uh, singing and dancing on the roundabout. It was a feast. It was a party. As the movement grew and moved into big cities, what began as a festive protest turned into a sometimes violent revolt. Public attention focused on the clashes between protesters, along with ultras from right and left, black bloc anarchists and the police. A teenage pupil stops to look at the poster. I'm not surprised that the Gilets jaunes are involved in these elections, he says. They have good ideas, but there's too much violence between them and the riot police, and it's not all coming from the riot police either. The black blocs, uh, it's just a nightmare for us. They are stupid. There have also been some, some yellow vests smashing things up. Okay, maybe some yellow vest smash things. Maybe because there's a 27th week they fight and a 27th week the government tell us go home, I don't want to hear you. Lanet believes the Gilets jaunes protests can now only be resolved through the ballot box and these European elections are a stepping stone to building a more direct democracy. The Alliance Jaune Manifesto proposes a series of taxes on big corporations, financial transactions and a green tax on heavy fuel like kerosene. And they would use the money to... Make our citizens happy. Make our citizens able to live properly of their work. Just food in their fridge. Even with 2,000 euros in France, you can't live properly. One of their key demands is a transfer of power from the president to the people via what they call the RIC, or Citizens' Initiative Referendum. MPs and MEPs would be called to account via referendum. They could be sacked, laws could be proposed, even repealed. RIC is the only way to rule a real democracy. We are citizens. We want to decide the way our country is ruled. If one of our representatives don't make a good job, we ask him to justify. And after we are going to go to all European countries to speak with the yellow vest in the other country and make a real democratic group in Europe in five years, put citizens in the center of the decisions and not politicians and not technocracy. They would set up a network of EU satellite offices here in France and whenever Alliance Jaune MEPs voted on something, the motion would also be put to their constituents back here. So MEPs would no longer be representatives with decision-making powers, but subject to constant scrutiny and approval by the people. The Gilets Jaunes movement is varied. Some are sovereignists, anti-Europe, others refuse any involvement in organised politics. But the RIC is a common thread. Given that around two-thirds of French law is linked to the EU, André Lanny says yellow vest demands have to reach Brussels. We need to be in Europe to have a better life in France. I think we don't want more Europe, we don't want less Europe, we want better Europe. Uh, Laurent, tu as vu pour uh, le Dreux 
At Alionchon HQ, he discusses getting that message out with another volunteer. Not easy when you're running a campaign on a shoestring with volunteers and candidates dipping into their own pockets. Alionchon is luckier than some other new lists. Francis Lalanne's notoriety has helped them secure an 800,000 euro bank loan, underwritten by a billionaire friend of his. If they get at least three percent of the vote, the state will reimburse their expenses. But the latest opinion polls suggest that Alliance Jaune could score as low as one percent. André's enthusiasm, however, remains intact. We don't go to a fight uh, thinking, uh, okay, maybe we are not going to win. So for the moment, we win much more than three percent. Please, much more. <laughs> At the very least, these elections will show just how much support there really is for the Gilets Jaunes, and whether they're still a force to be reckoned with. That's it for this week. Spotlight on France is a podcast from the English service of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Guillaume Buffet. And if you like what you hear, tell us about it. Our email address is spotlight.france at rfi.fr. And even better, find Spotlight on France on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us. That helps people find us. You can subscribe to the show there or in your favorite podcast platform. See you next Friday. Well, well, well.